All right, and uh, so as you're turning to Psalm 90, uh, I want to share with you uh, something that came across my Twitter feed earlier this week. This is from an unbelieving friend of mine back in Birmingham. He said this, was up earlier this morning because I couldn't sleep, and all I could think about was how one day I will suddenly vanish. I will be gone. I won't experience blackness. I'll experience nothing. And it's impossible to imagine, since imagining nothingness still requires you to see yourself there. And it terrified me. I managed to sleep for a bit and woke up thinking about breakfast food. So it evens out. I I mean, I know it's early on a Sunday morning, so sorry for starting out on that note if you haven't had your coffee yet, but you are facing down the barrel of an existential crisis, and the way you decide to come to terms with that is by thinking about breakfast food. It, it really brought me to tears. That, that is how well-equipped most of our world is to handle the reality that One day we aren't going to be here. We are not immortal. Have you ever thought about that? That one day you will die? If you haven't thought about it, you have plenty of company. I think we live in one of the most death-averse or death-ignoring societies that has ever lived. Up until... You know, 100 years ago, families would intend to have you know, as many children as they possibly could because they expected, just statistically, that some of their children weren't going to make it. Up until recently, with modern medicine and nursing homes and hospitals, uh, you know, people didn't go to the hospital to spend out their last days. They would just die at home in their bed with all of their family around. Like Death was just a very common and accepted part of everyday living. Anti-aging industry is billion dollar industry. Anti-aging creams and anti-graying creams and we just we live in a society that will do anything to appear younger, that will do anything to act younger. We we will do anything to stave off the inevitable fact that one day we are going to die. And then we come to our psalm for this morning, Psalm 90. And this psalm is basically trying to pull our heads out of the sand, to to take our hands off of our eyes and to get us to acknowledge the elephant in the room. That death is batting a thousand. And one day, all of us are going to die. What I hope we'll see by the end of our time together through studying this psalm is that that reality doesn't have to cause us to be fearful. It doesn't have to lead us into futility. It doesn't have to lead us into an existential crisis. It doesn't have to make us try and grasp for any tiny little distraction. Psalm 90 is equipping us to prepare for our last days. 
So if you would, turn your attention to Psalm 90. This is written by Moses. He is at the end of his life. And so he's seen a lot at this point. He was floated down the Nile as a baby. He saw the, the burning bush. He led the people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. He saw all the glory of God pass before him. He led Israel through wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And he has brought them up to the brink of the promised land. He's in his last days and he is going to distill a lifetime of wisdom into his psalm. This is Moses' final prayer. And he starts out in verse 1, and he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, now before moving on, before we actually get just into the the actual content of the psalm, I, I just think it's really interesting how Moses started his prayer. He, he didn't ask for anything. He just starts out by recognizing God You have been our dwelling place, our refuge. You have been our home in all of our generations. Moses starts out by praising God. You ever ask yourself, what what is most of the content of my prayers? How often do I just approach God before his throne and immediately start asking for things? Or do you recognize that God is God, and he is worthy of praise simply because he is God. Before you ask anything of him, we should simply approach God in praise. It's like what, this is actually how Jesus taught us to pray. When he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He didn't start out asking for daily bread or asking for deliverance from temptation. He just centered himself. He oriented himself. He gave himself the right perspective by simply starting to praise God. And so, in order to make that first step towards, towards this kind of wisdom that this psalm is going to talk about, just, yeah, ask yourself that question. Have you become too self-centered in your prayers? Are your prayers 100% about asking God for things? What Moses is trying to teach us right from the start is that God is not a, a divine Pez dispenser, He is glorious, and he is wise, and he is big, and he is beautiful, and he is kind, and he is merciful. And so when we enter into his presence in prayer, before we ask God for anything, just stop for a moment and bask in who he is and give him the praise for it. That will give us the proper orientation towards gaining wisdom. So Moses starts with praise, and then verses 2 through 4 show specifically what Moses was praising God for. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for one thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So the thing that Moses is praising God for is for God's being eternal. It says, God, you have no beginning, you have no end. From everlasting to everlasting, you simply are God. You are eternal. Alpha and Omega. And 
As finite beings, there might not be a more difficult concept for us to understand. Okay, we, we are bound by time. We live inside of time so that we experience one second, and then the next second, and then the next second. We, we, we cannot help but live in time. But what Moses is praising God for is God is not bound by time. He is outside of time. He actually created time. Okay, so again, just, just try and think about this. Like, Go all the way back as far as your mind can carry you and ask, okay, well, what caused anything? Like, how are we here right now? Did we just evolve out of some primordial soup? Well, where did the soup come from? Like, where did those materials come from? Like, something does not come out of nothing. So, something had to be before that nothing. I know that makes no sense. But it's because, as, as finite creatures, we, we almost can't grasp the concept of God existing eternally. But scripture is clear that before anything was, God was. Before anything was, God is. Before anything will be, God is already there being. Second Peter 3 put it this way, it says, With the Lord one day is as 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is as one day. It can be... That much time, or it can be a millennium, God experiences all of it the same. He is outside of time. He is the creator of everything. And God's bigness, his eternality, brought an incredible comfort to Moses. He said, God, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. So Moses thought back to all the generations before him that God had been faithful to. He said, God, you were there with Abraham. You called him out of his homeland and, and you were faithful to the promises that you made to him. You were there with Joseph when his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. You were there protecting and guiding Joseph. You, you were there with us back in Egypt with Pharaoh and his army hot on our heels, you delivered us through the Red Sea. You brought us in to safety. And so Moses thought back on the thousands of years of faithfulness that God had shown to his people. And Moses just rested in the fact that God is so much bigger than his current circumstances. Does anybody here this morning need to be comforted by the fact that God is a lot bigger than your current circumstances. Things aren't going well at home, just broken relationships and frustration and disappointment or something at work where you're just not getting along with your coworkers, or you're wondering where your next paycheck is going to come from or you've just spending a lot more time at the hospital recently than you would have cared to. While you are experiencing that, God is already before time and he is already after time. He is God. 
And he, and he cares. Of course God cares about the struggles that we go through, but compared to the calm stillness of his eternality, this is barely even a blip. God has got you. He is caring for you. He has seen thousands of generations through trials, and he is going to carry you through it. So whatever you're going through right now, just go to sleep easy tonight. Rest in peace because God is so much bigger, and he's going to take care of it. So Moses begins his prayer with a praise, praising God for being eternal. And then he shifts his focus, and he's going to start comparing or contrasting himself with God. Read in verses 5 through 11 with me. Speaking of his own years, his own lifespan, Moses said this, You sweep them away as with a flood, and they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? So in verses 5 through 11, Moses is contrasting himself with God. And, and he notes two primary differences between God and himself. The first thing he notes is the sinfulness of man. And the second thing he notes is the brevity of man. So let's start with the sinfulness. In verse 8, Moses talks about the sinfulness and the iniquities of Israel being set before God. And as the leader of Israel, Moses is well aware of all of Israel's shortcomings. If you go back and read Exodus, you know, God delivered them out of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. They sang the song of Moses praising God for his deliverance in verse 15. And with that song still ringing in their ears, chapter 16 comes and the Israelites start grumbling. God, this food you're sending down doesn't taste very good. It was actually better for us if we were back in Egypt as slaves. Just like two weeks later, they were dying to go back into slavery. There, Israel committed the sin of grumbling, forgetfulness. Exodus 32, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Israel's down here worshiping a golden calf. Committed the sin of idolatry. Keep going on in, in the story. You come to Numbers 14 where God brings them to the promised land and so Israel sends out 12 spies to stake out their plan of attack and 10 of those 12 come back and say, those people are too big. There's no way we can take this land. And only two of them said, they might be bigger than us, but God is with us and he will be faithful to us. But Israel sided with the ten. They committed the sin of unbelief. 
not believing that God would deliver them. Just the, the story of Israel as a people is a story of repeated failure. Over and over and over again, they just sinned and turned their back on God at every single chance that they had. And because of their sin, Moses writes in Psalm 90 that they are brought to an end by the Lord's anger. They are dismayed by his wrath. Verse 11 says that they are in great fear before the wrath of God. In contrasting God and himself, Moses notes that God is holy and that we are inherently sinful and that we are under the just wrath of an eternal God. And the scriptures are clear that we are deserving of wrath, but more than deserving just wrath, we are deserving of an eternal wrath. Luke 16 has a pretty scary story. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man lived his life, you know, spending it all on himself. And Lazarus was the poor beggar, you know, begging at the rich man's gate. And when both of them die, Lazarus is in heaven with the Lord. And the rich man, who doesn't even have a name, is begging for the flames of hell to be uh, put out. He, He experienced an eternal conscious torment. Revelation 14 says, speaking of that kind of experience, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. A a common complaint that's often levied against God is this doctrine of an eternal punishment. I think, okay, why would a sin committed in time be deserving of an eternal punishment like why would just like one lie or one sin or one mistake why would that deserve an eternity of punishment the reason why that you know it often doesn't make sense to us is because we tend to think that a punishment should fit the crime you ever heard that the punishment should fit the crime Well, a more biblical way to think about it is that a punishment should not fit the crime or the offender. A biblical way to think about it would be to say that the punishment should fit the offended. All right, so track with me here. Say, for some reason, you don't like me. And so, after the service is over, you come up and you slap me in the face. All right? Worst thing that's going to happen is, you know, hopefully I'm a little more holy than this, but I'm probably going to hit you back fair and we're not going to be friends that's probably it though that's that's what happens if you hit me okay now say you go up to a police officer and you slap them in the face okay he's probably going to hit you back and then you're going to go to jail okay so say say then you go one step further and now you go up to the president of the united states and you slap him in the face Okay, you are never going to see the light of day again if you do that. Notice, it's the same offense. You're slapping all three of us. But the punishment does not fit the crime. The punishment fits the one who is offended. And so what happens when we offend an infinitely and eternally holy God? 
It is right for us to experience an infinitely and eternal punishment because God is infinite and eternal. The punishment should fit uh, the one who is offended. And so after, uh, you know, teaching us to enter into prayer with praise, Moses then teaches us that we need to enter prayer and come before God humbly, knowing that we are deserving of an infinite and eternal wrath. Meaning for us, and for Moses, though he didn't quite know all the details about it yet, that we need to come before God through Christ. Jesus is the only way that we have any confidence or any hope of being before God without experiencing that eternal justice. At the cross, the justice and the wrath that should have been on us and for our sins was poured out on Jesus. And so if you are in Christ, it is through him that you can go before the Father. And so we need to approach God humbly, through Jesus because of his justice. So Moses points out man's sinfulness, and the second thing that Moses points out when he contrasts God and man is mankind's brevity. Just listen to the the wispiness that Moses describes our life like. He says, it's like a passing dream, like grass in the morning that flourishes and is renewed, but by the evening... It fades, it withers. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Years of our life are 70, maybe even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Just... Do you feel the contrast here? You have the eternal God who goes an eternity into the past and an eternity into the future. He is experiencing all of it right now. And then you and I are 70, maybe even 80 years. Like That is a gross over-exaggeration of our lives. James 4 says that our life is like a mist, just a... And then it vanishes. The psalm is drawing our attention to our own mortality. And like my friend who I shared about at the beginning, we we don't typically like to think about our own death. It makes us feel small. makes us feel vulnerable. It makes us feel the, the frailty and the weakness of our frame. And so what we try to do is we we try to repress what we know to be true. We try to ignore the the ticking clock that is on all of our lives. And we pretend that if we can just ignore that sound, that it will bring us peace. But Scripture actually teaches us a much different way of dealing with our lives and our own brevity. Verse 12, I think, is, is the perfect summary of this entire psalm. Verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That, that, that is some of the most countercultural wisdom that you can hear in this world. Purposefully focus your attention on the day that you will die. Not, not in a, a sinful way of, you know, trying to figure out the when and the where, but just 
the broad concept that one day you are not going to be here. Because when you realize that you don't have all the time in the world, and that every second is a gift, and that you are not guaranteed another breath, that forces you to value the time that you do have and to make the most of it. Ephesians 5 tells us to look carefully then how you walk Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. I think understanding the value of time is a key to gaining wisdom. Time is the most valuable and scarce resource that any of us have. You can lose every dollar, you can make it back. You can lose every friend, you can get more friends. You want to know what Bill Gates and I have in common? A second is just as valuable to both of us. Once a moment is gone, you can never get it back. Time is our most valuable resource. It's like when Jesus shared with us the parable of the talents. You know this story? Jesus came up to three different men and he gave uh, each according to their ability. So he gave one man five talents, one man two talents, and uh, one man one talent. And he said, do your best with it. I'm going to come back. So one, two of the men invested it. They gave all their time, all their energy, all their wisdom. And the man with five talents, the man with two talents, turned it into ten and to four. But one man ignored the reality that the master was coming back. He just tried to ignore that, that ticking, the fact that his time was running out. So he just stuck his head in the sand and pushed it away. So when the master came back, he said to the two who had invested it, he said, well done, my good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the other servant, he said, you are a wicked and slothful servant. What I think we can learn from that is that wisdom does not come from ignoring our own mortality. Wisdom does not come from ignoring the fact that time is running out. Wisdom is always keeping our own mortality at the front of our minds so that it can focus us on kingdom purposes. It can focus us on what really matters. That's actually how Moses is going to end this psalm. He's been building to this for a while. In the last few verses, after reflecting on who God is and reflecting on his own shortcomings and limitations, Moses finally gets to the petitions. He finally gets to the asking part of his prayers. Read the last few verses, starting in verse 16 with me. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So when my wife Lauren read uh, this psalm, she, she was really helpful in pointing out, I guess, the tension of this psalm and specifically how it ends. Moses has spent all this time focusing on the, the wispiness and the futility of life. And then he closes by praying, God, establish the work of our hands. You see how that's kind of weird? Like, ah, it's all nothing. 
it's all pointless, it's all short. But he ends with saying, okay, God, I, I still want to leave behind something. Will you establish the work of my hands? And, and I think like most people who are 60 or older, Moses is starting to think about what kind of legacy he's going to leave, what kind of impact is going to, be, is going to remain after he's gone. And again, like a lot of older people, I think Moses is in a bit of an Ecclesiastes kind of mood. Vanity of vanity. Everything is vanity. Sun goes up. Sun goes down. Generations go by and people don't change. I led these people out of slavery. I've tried to show them the glory of God, but they just want to they want to go back to Egypt. We wandered around in the desert for 40 years and most of my friends died off. I, I'm not even going to be able to go into the promised land. Like, God, I, I have spent my entire life as the leader of your people. And I just, I've worked so hard, but I don't feel like I have anything to show for it. So Moses prays, God, even if I am not alive to see it, I want to leave something of impact behind. Please establish the work of my hands. Reminds me of what David said in Psalm 127. He says, if anyone, uh, unless, now if anyone builds, um, ah, shoot, I'll just turn to it. I'm sorry, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. Like Mo- Moses has spent his entire life trying to lead the people of Israel, and they have just turned their back, and he has seen no progress. And so he's praying, God, establish something. It's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Meaning that only the work that is done in Christ is going to survive. If any of our work is done in the flesh, if it's built on the foundation of wood, hay, or straw, it is going to get burnt up and we will leave nothing behind. But if it is done for Jesus, if it is done for kingdom purposes, if it is built on the foundation of gold and silver and diamonds, that is something that is going to survive and leave an impact. I can't think of a much more universally applicable lesson to learn. Whether it's our parenting, our working, our friendships, our evangelism, our church services, our church planting. We can spin our wheels doing as much as we possibly could imagine. But if it is not done for the glory of God and for kingdom purposes, then we're just going to leave nothing behind. And so usually we you know, try to conclude a service with a bit of an evangelistic call saying, look to Christ, but I, I'm going to speak a little more uh, towards the believer, towards the church. Only the things that are done for the glory of God are going to last. I guarantee you, on your last day, you are going to wish that you had spent your time better. 
that you had invested it into the kingdom, that you had laid down everything for the church, that you had discipled as many people, that you had encouraged as many people as you possibly could, you are not going to wish that you had held some back. I don't know about you, but I don't want to sprint across the finish line without gasping. I, I, I want to crawl on my hands and knees, holding nothing back. I want to drag myself over the line because I gave everything to the kingdom. That's the only thing that is going to last. So quite simply, this psalm is calling us to number our days, to invest in the only thing that is going to outlast us, which is the kingdom of God, and to live every single second of our lives toward that goal. So towards that end, let me pray for us. God, you are so much bigger than us. You are transcendent. You are eternal. You are the Alpha and the Omega, and we are humbled to even come before you. Lord, would you show us our own weakness and our own limitations and our own frailty? Would, would you bring us to the end of ourselves? Would you show us how small we actually are. God, we can do all that we want, but if you ultimately don't do the work, it's all pointless. And so we ask that you would strengthen us. Would you establish us? Would you would you make it all worthwhile? God, we want to glorify you. We want to build your kingdom. We want to see people come to know you. We want to see people grow in their knowledge and their love of you. But God, we can't do it on our own. We need your spirit. We need your grace. We need, God, we need you. And so we are asking humbly for you to bless us and to keep us and to establish the work that we are doing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.